you are listening to AI Ready Healthcare. I am Anirban Mukhopadhyay, your host from Tiu Darmstadt, Germany. The purpose of AI Ready Healthcare is to connect the advanced technological knowledge of Mekai society to different stakeholders such as clinicians, industry personnel, regulatory personnel to name a few. You can expect deep meaningful conversations about bringing AI into the real clinical routine. Opinion belongs to whoever said it. Anything said here is not medical advice. Together let's make healthcare AI ready. This episode of AI Ready Healthcare, Professor Daniel Rukert aptly summarized his three-decade-long journey of Mikhai research and also his new research about federated learning for neuroimaging. All right, so welcome to the sixth season of AI Ready Healthcare. It's a rather sunny day here in Darmstadt. I'm your host, Anirban. It is my pleasure to welcome today Professor Daniel Rucker from Technical University Munich. Daniel is the Humboldt Professor of Artificial Intelligence in Healthcare and Medicine at TU Munich. He's highly influential researcher from the Mikai community. I don't often quote citation counts, etc. But in this case, I can't resist because I just checked today in Google Scholar. He has about 75,000 citations. That's some number, I guess, to brag about. <laughs> so in terms of the research focus, Daniel focuses on the development of innovative algorithms for image acquisition, analysis, interpretation, as well as for extracting clinically useful information from uh, biomedical images, especially for computer-assisted diagnosis and prognosis. Yeah, and I'm really looking forward to an engaging session with Daniel. But first of all, welcome to the podcast, Daniel. Thank you very much. Uh, and thank you for having me on your, on your podcast. I've listened to many episodes and they're all very exciting. Yeah, we are very excited to have you here. And I guess one of the traditional ways we start the podcast is always about the becoming. How was your journey and how did you become who you currently are? So I can I can tell you a bit about that and I'll, I'll try to keep it a bit short, but I ended up where I am probably more by accident than, uh, than design. So I had a very uh, a good fortune when I studied in Berlin um, in my diploma uh, to have some experience with medical imaging and I found this very exciting and uh, I decided after my diploma to actually uh, go to London initially for a year to get some experience there with working with medical imaging and uh, ended up spending 25 years uh, in, in London in the UK before returning two years ago to Germany to Munich and really, uh, what really transformed, I think, my experiences with medical imaging and with AI in medicine is after my PhD uh, in London, I spent two years working in a radiology department at Guy's Hospital with somebody who was probably in the Mikai community, very well known, Dave Fox, who was sort of one of the pioneers of bringing image registration into the hospital. And I really learned a lot about how different the application of our technology can be in a hospital setting. And I found this very intriguing, very exciting. I think that excitement hasn't, has never sort of stopped. And uh, when I came two years ago to Munich, uh, I had the pleasure of, or the opportunity of working not only in a computer science department, but also in the university hospital here. So I'm very happy to have made that move and uh, very happy to now work very intensely with colleagues from radiology and pathology uh, to try to bring some of the technology we work on into the clinic. Yeah, that's that's really wonderful. I guess you sort of, I don't know, 25, 30 years of journey you summarized in less than three minutes. That's amazing. <laughs> well, actually, if you say it like this, you first of all, you obviously feel, you start suddenly feel very old. 
<laughs> and uh the good thing is it probably also it felt uh not that long but uh yeah i i think it's it, you go through different stages in in your career and i think one of the things i always enjoyed is sort of being able to obviously if you stay in academia and if you don't go to industry you have quite a lot of potential to to influence the directions in which you want to go and you can follow your your interests quite a lot in my case i think i i really feel privileged that i could do that and i enjoyed it very much and it's also now interesting to start a new a new career uh, here in in munich sometimes you feel like you're just starting your postdoc because all your experiences are very new and you make a lot of mistakes as well and so that's very very exciting as well yeah i guess the word is vintage not old daniel <laughs> yeah i think that's i think that's you put you're putting it very nicely thanks <laughs> thank you very much so i guess there are two sort of things that you said uh, that were very interesting so i heard quite a lot of times from our other guests as well that they ended up in this sort of a, a research career somewhat by accident and then they loved it they feel very passionate and that passion lingers in your case as well we heard from you like how passionate you are about seeing this and often we also hear the fact that rather than focusing completely on the technology itself the big let's say motivation comes from seeing the technology transitions from let's say a mikai paper to actually being uh, helpful for for the in the clinic so can you tell us a little bit about someone who is really early in their career maybe sitting in a computer science department and trying to do mikai sort of research what would be your advice for them to sort of see this this bigger picture of transition So I I think that's a difficult question to answer but I'll try to have a go at answering this. So I think one of the, the things which I think is is very important is to realize that you are typically a domain expert in a very narrow narrow field. So even if we take something like the Mikai community which is probably some people would say it's a very broad community, lots of different technologies and so on. I think it's still quite narrow field and if you the thing which I found always very helpful when I sort of looked out for how do we get this translated and who could I talk to to actually make that translation happening is you need to find a colleague on the clinical side who obviously has an interesting clinical question which most of them would have but also who appreciates what solution or what 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 the different community could bring to a solution and when i say different community is sort of they need to think of you as not only uh somebody who will solve one of their problem for them but also you need to innovate in your own community so i think uh it's always challenging to find collaborators who completely understand that perhaps some problems for you are not interesting to work on but some others are very challenging and likewise you need to understand that on the clinical side that perhaps your clinical collaborators couldn't care less about dice index than they care about sort of really affecting uh patient outcome so what i always found very helpful is to look for those collaborators who you think they can understand this because not everybody can and sometimes we also don't understand it's also our fault it's not always uh your collaborators fault but i think you need to find those those collaborators with which you think you can click they understand what makes you tick and you understand what makes them tick and i think that's sort of not that easy actually and not will not always work and i think my advice also would be to sometimes be quite courageous and walk away from something where you see actually you know we probably n- will never be on the same wavelength it's a shame but but sometimes you can't change everything uh, and change everybody correct totally so i guess this is something uh, that you are saying is basically search and find those collaborators with whom you click and they understand you you understand them and basically continue working with them for a long time yeah i, I think it's always useful to understand what makes them tick and i think then they will also understand what makes you tick and what makes as you said earlier you know we often quite 
passionate uh, about what we do. And I think your collaborators will be similarly passionate about, for example, helping patients and, and really having an impact. So I think it's it's worthwhile to try to understand that from both sides. So I guess I sort of have a follow-up question here. It's because simply in, let's say, most of us who has done the technical journey or our listeners who has gone through the clinical journey, we never learned in our training how to communicate in a cross-disciplinary manner. That's something that basically you learn by doing and you said you are making mistakes even now. So I'm sure in your long career, you have made enough mistakes and enough successes as well. So can you just maybe give us some advice of what works and what doesn't work? Yeah, I I think, uh, again, there's also a very good question. I think one of the things which I I realized is sometimes, or I've made the mistake sometimes that... uh, not to be enough sort of forthcoming and, and and explaining our clinical collaborators what actually makes a challenging problem for us. So sometimes I think a lot of our clinical collaborators, they see us as computer scientists, which we of course are, but computer science is of course a very broad church and, and therefore, and they don't always understand perhaps what really is an interesting problem for us and what's not. And sometimes that's our fault because we don't really communicate what, for example, is uh, what drives us uh, uh, forward. Likewise, I think I've also sometimes made the mistake to have too many sort of pre-prescribed notions of what I think the clinician really wants from me. And they're not really listening to what they actually, what they actually say in the, in, in the discussion. And then, of course, one of the things which I always think is very important is is to really think about whether most of what we do is sort of data-driven. So a fundamental limit to what we can make work and what we cannot make work is, do we have the right data? Because I think in many cases, I've also had collaborations, which we really felt super excited about doing something. Our clinical collaborators felt equally uh, excited. And then we realized, you know what, we cannot really get the data, which we need to answer that question. So Again, this is something where I think that's very much important to discuss upfront. I think the other thing which I, if, which I'm, if I may add one more, one more point is sort of that I think sometimes, of course, the clinical translation can also happen not through an academic collaboration, but perhaps via a startup or via getting involved also with industry. Because of course, if we look at industry, they're in the business of taking innovations into clinic. And sometimes they are better equipped at doing this. I also felt that sometimes I really wanted to do something, uh, a translation, but I also realized probably somebody else would say, well, why does he not write any more papers? This is sometimes not something you can easily publish or get easily recognition for. And that's perhaps in my stage, not so, so difficult anymore. But if you're, for example, more early career, academics, sometimes this can be very difficult to convey to your head of department or when you sit at the next promotions round, you know, you spend a lot of time trying to make something, translate something, but actually it doesn't necessarily lead to 10 papers. It probably only really leads to one study, which you're very proud of, but not everybody values that equally uh, much. I see. So if I try to summarize what you said, sort of the first thing is defining who we exactly are, what services we can versus can't provide. The second is about careful listening rather than trying to speak uh, what is in our mind. (laughs) The third would be to see uh, the balance between the right question and the right data, if we have that. And the fourth part is basically the style of collaboration and what where the incentive is. Some some collaborations might be more meaningful in an academic setting because it generates more impactful publications versus some where the technology is more matured, maybe as a startup or maybe even as a 
Siemens or GE-like company setting. It it really depends on the collaboration and the technology that we are coming together. So, you you summarized it very eloquently, much better than, than I've. <laughs> no, I I sort of was writing down because these were really important things, and especially for those who are early career listeners, it's very important. We are talking about our early career listeners, but. Those who are more of our senior listeners, they might recognize that early on you mentioned image registration. And if like when I started going to Mikai, my first Mikai was 2012, and I sort of looked at you and your research more like registration and using registration in an Atlas-based setting for segmentation. I guess nobody understands now what I'm talking about. <laughs> but I, I have exactly, sometimes I have exactly the same feeling. I'm talking to some of the, the more junior uh, PhD students or master students, and they, they just think, what is he talking about? <laughs> but anyway, I, I still think that those are very interesting things and some of the core pattern recognition principles hold there, hold here, hold no matter which way we are going. And then, of course, there is a big change of uh, deep learning, right? So from your perspective, can you give us a sort of insights of what are the main differences between pre and post deep learning era of Mikai research? I think that's a very good question. And sometimes, uh, you know, we're, I guess we were both at uh, Mikai a couple of weeks ago and sort of you always after you come after you've listened to many posters and and talks you always sort of think in your head and and try to sort of summarize what has really changed and where is the field going so i would first of all say is in my experience when i worked with in the pre machine learning pre deep learning era on sort of image registration and segmentation and the methods you just mentioned it sometimes felt that we're using more domain knowledge and more knowledge for example about the the data, uh, how the data is generated, how, uh, um, for example, what is the impact of different uh, acquisition parameters, and so more explicit than we're doing now with deep learning. I think it's much more easy to ignore some of these details. And I think, you know, in some sense, that's not a bad thing, because I think that also sometimes shows that deep learning is sometimes a bit more powerful than perhaps some of the old older approaches. Let me give you one example. I felt in the pre sort of deep learning era when we wanted to do a segment, solve a segmentation problem, we would really customize a segmentation pipeline, for example, using atlases, which we would then register and then with EM algorithm sort of intensity refinement calculators, it would be really customized to one organ and one image modality and would work pretty well there. But would not be easily transferable to something else. I think with a sort of deep learning era, one of the things with it which has changed is that I could, for example, now take some very good algorithms like NNUNet or other things. And the only thing which I really need is training data to make it work on a different organ or on a different data set. So actually, we probably need to innovate less on sometimes on the methodology side at least for some tasks such as segmentation. And actually, I would almost argue that we're getting to the point where I would say it's really a matter of having enough data, not whether the algorithm is good enough. The algorithm is probably good enough. You just need enough data. So I think we are much more able to use these deep learning approaches as a black box and also out of the box. Now, I think sometimes we lose something by not really understanding how the data was acquired. For example, if I sometimes see that people don't really care about voxel sizes and slice thickness, and you feel like actually you're losing quite a lot of knowledge about how big an object is and so on. But I think uh, there is a benefit not having to know all of this. So um, I think there are downsides and upsides. I think sometimes you also see that, of course, some of these technologies reoccur. So for example, if you... In the beginning, when deep learning came in, everybody said we don't no longer need registration because it's no longer important. We can solve everything without registration. And then a couple of years later, people came up with a very good idea. Actually, let's solve registration with deep learning. And they did it very well uh, and, and, and we came up with very nice approaches. And I still think that, for example, being able to register images 
make some things easier because you can reduce unwanted nuisance factors and so on. So I think it's worthwhile also, that's what I would recommend students, is to also look back at some of the pre-deep learning era of some of the approaches, but I also realize that the amount of literature is exploding so rapidly that it's almost becoming impossible to to be aware of all these different approaches. Totally. I, I, I kind of get, like, first of all, there's this last point you made that with so many papers, it's almost impossible to keep track of what's going on. And the best sort of summary you get is sort of by reading or skimming through abstracts. I mean, the number of, or even like going to some some conferences such as Mikhai and trying to listen what people are saying, how the, their trains of thoughts are. I guess when you are answering to my question, the first thing you sort of mentioned is that in many ways, deep learning has lowered the boundary, lowered the barrier of entry, basically. So as long as you have access to high quality data and annotations, you can reach a certain level of performance, which was very difficult in a pre-deep learning era. And you had to have a lot of assumptions built to your particular domain, particular uh, anatomy, and then you solve a certain thing and you don't generalize. Deep learning has definitely made sure you can sidestep some of it. But in a way, it's also uh, bringing us to the question, you know, that rules are meant to be broken, but you first have to know what the rules are and why those rules were actually created. Otherwise, it's a complete chaos. And if the current young listeners are going into the complete chaotic part, then that's also a problem, right? And we often see that there are certain critical situations where deep learning is doing completely crap results and we are really wondering what went wrong, what stuff things. So when when you are talking about really putting deep learning into healthcare, which is really a critical uh, uh, problem, what should be things that early career researchers would be very careful about? So I, I think the one thing, and I can also say this from, from my own experience, of course, is that I think if a result is too good to be true, then it's typically you have done something wrong. And so I, and I know this from, from own experience, correct? So, so I think one of the things which I always try to do myself, but also try to tell my students and postdocs is sort of really do sanity checks. Does it actually make sense for you what you observe? And if it doesn't make sense, you should really take a step back and think about why it doesn't, doesn't make sense. So I think that's, that's one thing. It's, the second thing I would sort of say is it's getting more and more important that we not only use technical metrics for evaluating what we do, but also clinical metrics. Uh, so what is really the clinical usefulness? So are we really chasing 1% dice? Does it actually make, make sense in the clinical application? And I think then the other thing, which I think everybody is getting more and more aware of is that, for example, what's the impact of our algorithms in terms of potentially being trustworthy, but also fair and unbiased? I mean, there's a, there's a lot of really exciting work in my mind sort of now really unraveling that, you know, there are a lot of biases and unfair, potential unfairnesses in, in data-driven algorithms. And also we're realizing that actually perhaps many of these unfairnesses and biases were already present in medicine before, right? It's not, not necessarily yet we have invented them, but uh, I think we have a sort of, I think also a sort of responsibility of sort of trying to fix some of them uh, is not only that we want to be more accurate, I think there's a lot of value in, in being being accurate on every, for example, group of patients. So I think this is also something which I, I would try to get people to, to understand that there are lots of different aspects and how you can evaluate the performance of a, of a deep learning technique. And because deep learning is so much data driven, we probably need to be a bit more aware than we, for example, if I, if I develop a registration-based algorithm in the conventional way, I don't think it's inherently unfair because it's probably, I haven't even made any assumptions about the data, but if I now train an algorithm only with, with data to make a registration, I no longer can guarantee that 
it's perhaps not treating one group of patients differently. So I think we need to be aware of this. And I think there's actually is a great opportunity for exciting research in this space. Wonderful. So I guess because of your technical background, you sort of answered the question in three levels. So you started with the technical part about sanity checks. If the result is too good to be true, probably it's not. So be very careful. The second was more about the clinical parts, whether the technical metrics that we are so, so let's say apt at reporting in Mikhai papers are these, does these have any meaning in the clinical context? We need to really see the clinical part and finally the societal part about the fairness, unbiased, whether the network is trustworthy itself. So, yeah, that's really, I guess, a sort of hierarchical way of looking at this entire uh, uh, critical infrastructure and when AI comes into play in such a thing, what we should be aware of. So now we are moving more towards the second part of the session. And there I will first, we will be focusing on this paper that you have recently written. I mean, you have written many, many uh, exciting papers, uh, but this one is new and exciting in that sense because it got published in Nature Machine Intelligence. And this is about federated disentangled representation learning for unsupervised brain anomaly detection. So that's a joint work with Cosmin, Benedict, you, and Shadi Albarconi. And I will put the link of the paper below in the description so that all of our listeners can go and uh, check the paper out. But I guess, first of all, congratulations. That's a big, big success to have a nature machine intelligence paper through. Uh, and I guess the second question would be, can you give us a sort of three-point summary of why people are so excited and what they should uh, expect when they are reading this paper. So, uh, well, thank you first for the nice words about the paper. And and really, I wanted to thank especially Cosmin and, and, and Shadi, who sort of really drove the paper forward. But I think one of the things why I really like the paper sort of um, is that I think it combines a couple of things which I think are very promising directions uh, in, in, in current research. I think one is, uh, I think a lot of people will be aware of all the work going on in federated learning, where I think we're trying to move much more towards a scenario where we don't really have to exchange data, but we can leave data where it is, and therefore, uh, at least partly uh, address some concerns which people have about data sharing and privacy. Now, I also know, because we have also in our uh, in our in our uh, group, uh, a lot of people working on privacy research that federated learning alone doesn't guarantee necessarily privacy, but I think it it's a step, uh, it's one of the components which really uh, is very useful in privacy research. So I think being able to do federated learning here, I think one of the things in this paper I think is quite nice is that we've sort of really shown that we can do this with unsupervised learning problems. I think a lot of those uh, approaches have already been demonstrated in the supervised scenario. And here we're addressing uh, the unsupervised scenario. And unsupervised here means is that we would like to train a model uh, with, for example, in, in our case, normal brain scans in order to identify abnormalities in other uh, in other brain images, but without really having labeled data uh, for training. And the way we do this, and again, that, that's probably not the novel contribution of the paper, is that we want to effectively use a sort of encoder-decoder approach to effectively learn how to reconstruct normal-looking brains and then identify abnormalities as sort of the residual between uh, uh, what we reconstructed and the actual data. I think what's a very nice contribution uh, here is that we show that we can disentangle shape and appearance uh, when we build this autoencoder. And that disentanglement of shape and appearance is really important to make this approach scale across different types of scanners and different types of imaging sequences. I think, Anirban, you have also worked in this direction on disentanglement, and lots of others have worked on disentanglement. 
And I think people have shown that this is really a nice way of, for example, identifying some features which are stable, for example, the shape features, uh, and then also having features which are potentially more susceptible to variations in, in the imaging hardware. So I think in summary to your question, what's nice, the three nice things about this paper, I think is that we take federated learning and combine it in this unsupervised anomaly detection problem and really uh, drive it with this disentangled uh, shape and appearance modeling to get really robust performance across different uh, hospital data sets. Yeah, that's a wonderful summary. I guess, I mean, federated learning itself is becoming very popular and almost everybody is realizing that going forward, this is probably the only way because you won't find all the data sets from all hospitals in one central location. That's that's a delusion that's not going to happen, at least not in Europe with GDPR in place. So this is definitely a way to go forward. I guess the disentanglement part is still early. We have done some work as well there, but there are many other groups. So for example, Soto Saftaris also works a lot on, on the disentanglement representation in the cardiac setting. Here we are looking at the brain anomaly detection. But what was really cool for me is this unsupervised anomaly detection part as well. Because first of all, it means you don't really need to have a lot of annotated training data where you have diseased patients to train your neural network to figure out disease. But in a way, I, I guess, again, a long time ago, pre-deep learning, there were a time when sparse representation dictionary learning was fashion. And one of the things that we used to do there is try to find these atoms of the dictionary learning which are healthy and then use that to reconstruct and whatever we can't reconstruct is as disease. So is this a way similar to that idea or these are very different? I think it is similar in, in some sense. I think what you described though, which I think is a big difference, uh, and we've also played around with these dictionaries pre-deep learning era, is those approaches are typically patch-based. So actually what happens, well, what our experience was, and you tend to focus on looking at these patches and you lose a bit sort of the global context and it's more difficult to get that global context uh, back here. Sometimes that has an advantage, sometimes also disadvantage. So I think uh, when, when your anomalies are perhaps very localized, uh, for example, a lesion or something like this, then I think... These these dictionary learning approaches, sparse decompositions, I think they work very well, and I think they're very very uh, good for this. When you, for example, looking for more global sort of anomalies, for example, if you look at patients which have Alzheimer's or so, and you have sort of, for example, cortical atrophy, but it's diffuse, then I think these approaches typically tend to be too localized, and I think uh, having something which more takes a holistic view of the, for example, the object of interest, then tends to work, potentially is more powerful. I think um, that's at least our experience. And that's where sometimes also this decomposition into shape and appearance is also potentially useful because obviously you can have anomalies in both domains. You might have anomalies in the appearance domain because you have hyper intensities or hypo intensities, or you have potentially shape changes, which are perhaps more subtle in terms of intensities, but in the shape domain, perhaps more, more easy to see. Yeah, that totally makes sense. I mean, this patch-based approaches were sort of a rave at some point, but as you mentioned, if you are not putting them in context, uh, like same patch might look very similar. It doesn't matter like where it belongs. So, so that sort of, yeah, I totally agree there. I guess what was also very interesting to look at your paper, we typically don't see these sort of tables or figures in, in, in Mikhai papers, but figure one basically contains a table itself where you do look like you look at the training split versus the test split. And in the test split, you can't like there are data coming from multiple different uh, sources, right? So you ended up with four different sources for training and five different sources for testing. And this is really a very elaborate setup, unlike typical Mikai paper. 
So can you give us a bit of an insight of how you chose these sort of data sets and why you ended up with these and not something else? So I think, again, that's a very good question. I think one of the points, of course, is that we need for this type of approach uh, two types of data sets. So during training, we need one data set where we have a pretty good idea that these are healthy brains and that these are patients without very much sort of at least uh, clear pathology. And then, of course, in the case where we do want to or where we want to do the inference on is, of course, much more the, the, the application case where you then want to find uh, these anomalies. So, I mean, as you see, probably in the paper, sort of the the data sets which we used for for the, the training are data sets where you have a reasonable confidence that they probably indicate no no gross pathology. So, for example, if you look at the ADNI data, even though you have subtle pathology, ADNI has very stringent exclusion criteria for which patients they enroll in the study. And for example, if you have lesions or so, you would automatically be excluded. So these were data. So what we used here is sort of data sets where we have a reasonable confidence that they are uh, normal brains. And then, of course, in the in the in the test cases, there you want to, for example, also we wanted to, of course, be able to benchmark our algorithms against, for example, some of the challenge data in 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 Mikai. So we chose their data sets where we could do do those benchmarking experiments. So that was sort of the rationale for for uh, thinking. The other thing, obviously, we wanted is to have also data which comes from different domains for example different scanners because one of the things which i think we always were very skeptical of is how these anomaly detection algorithms to me they're always sort of very look very appealing but perhaps when you have scanner variations that actually is flagged as an anomaly correct and that's of course not something you want so there we we looked at can we get a good mix of of data which comes from different scanners, from different field strengths, and so on. And sort of those were sort of the design sort of criteria when we put those data sets together. Yeah, that's really wonderful. And I guess like when our listeners read the paper, one thing that would really come up is that you have actually in your, in your out of distribution sort of splits where you are actually validating your results you have three data sets that has multiple sclerosis and two more where you have brain tumors so it's a really very uh, well thought out experimental design to validate such a setup i guess the other sort of the technical question that comes to my mind is is about the federated learning and the weight sharing approach itself so federated learning is always at least theoretically if not yet practical is bounded by how the latency of the, the the bandwidth of the networks, right? So that means you typically don't share all the parameters all the time between clients and servers. And in your particular setup, you are doing disentanglement into shape and appearance. When it comes to parameter sharing, are you somehow taking advantage of this disentanglement or you are still sharing some parameters from shape and some from appearance when we're doing back and forth so for the for the weight sharing let me let me rephrase it i think for the the disentanglement is predominantly really from the representation point of view so i think uh, we don't really make full use of those, this disentanglement in the in the uh, in the parameter updates i think though i think obviously you can also the, as you said, the, the latency is an, is an important aspect when you do this in, in practice. And of course, if you really do it over, over multiple remote settings, that becomes even more critical. I think in this sort of scenario where you effectively simu simulate the federated learning, it's more doable to, to live with, uh, with, with, parameter, with full parameter updates. But I com completely agree with you that it becomes more more important when you roll this out to a very large number of sites and perhaps also then i mean in our case for example each client still has a reasonable number of of images correct so of course you don't have to necessarily do a weight uh, central update every time you can sort of 
optimize your batches for a while uh client by client side but when you go to scenarios where you have each client has very little data then that becomes more difficult but really we haven't really thought about what is the best way of perhaps using the disentangled representation to make that 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 weight sharing update more efficient actually that's a very good point uh perhaps we should think about the next Mikai paper on this yes totally right <laughs> thanks for the hint <laughs> I guess that's how it works. It's always a work in progress. And yeah, so I guess the other sort of question I had in mind, which is more about from technical to the to the actually you mentioned about the metrics and the metrics, the, the different metrics between clinical and technical. So in technical, when we are talking about segmentation, we talk about dice, right? And here in this particular application, I mean, you have two types of anomalies, tumors and these multiple sclerosis uh, types of anomalies. So uh, what are the clinically acceptable level of dyes that you are aiming for when, when you are developing this type of a method for both multiple sclerosis and tumor? So that's actually a very good question because I'm not sure that I can give you an answer to that. And it's not because I don't think we have thought about this. I think it it's really a question about what the clinical application is. And I think in that regard, I would also say that this paper perhaps also has, you know, there, there are some things which could be improved. And then that, that is, for example, would you really go for a, where is an anomaly detection scenario most useful uh, in? I think in my case, in my mind, an anomaly detection scenario is most useful if you, for example, have a large number of routine clinical data sets you're acquiring. You want to perhaps highlight, triage some of them for quick review by radiologists and others for, for a less quick review. Would you really use brain tumor detection for diagnostic purposes as a as an anomaly uh, detection problem i would probably argue no and I, I hope that also in the paper we we didn't say that this would be the primary use but on the other hand we used this data clearly because it was we have a baseline performance of what supervised methods can do so we know what unsupervised or what we should aim for at least with unsupervised learning but I would actually argue that the cases which we show here in this paper as applications are not really the clinical use cases we should use that for. So, and I think uh, uh, also uh, in the discussion, there's a bit on this, but I think you're raising a very good point, sort of what is clinically acceptable is, for example, uh, I think more a question of how many anomalies are you willing to miss? What's your false negative rate, your false positive rate you're willing to accept in a in a detection scenario? So in my mind, it's less about the dice, but more about what's the percentage of anomalies you have detected. And then the question perhaps also becomes is, you know, what do you define as an anomaly? Is, for example, one small lesion really clinically relevant? Uh, or would you go if your lesion load is, is above a certain threshold? You need to detect it. So that's, I think, where the next stage sort of perhaps when you go look, for example, as we discussed earlier, clinical translation, this is where you then, I think, probably need to be much more aligned with what the clinical use and what your clinical users would tell you on how they want to use it. So I think this is one of the shortcomings of the paper. Totally. No, but I agree that it's probably unfair to think that one paper will solve all the problems. We have to take this more as uh, the technical validation of an important clinical problem. And then of course, there were some pragmatic choices that you had to make based on the availability of the data. And what was really interesting for me is that in figure four and five of the paper, you went into very thorough, how to say, understanding of what influences the performance, gender, age, but also looking at the size of the tumor, for example, and how that's affecting. Often these are not discussed. But what was really interesting to look at, uh, for example, in figure five, uh, is that 
you are getting steadily better as the tumor size increases to a certain point. But beyond that, the performance again drops. So that's something that was really fascinating to me. Do you have like an idea of, is it simply because those cases are so rare that we can't even have a statistically significant number to call that the performance has dropped, like really big or really small? Or is it for some other reasons uh, the performance are dropping? So I, I think the, the honest answer is I'm not 100% sure. I have a feeling for, for that actually what you have sort of speculated in the first part of your question that, that perhaps this is not entirely statistically significant uh, because you have fewer and fewer of these cases. And that sometimes I think if you look, for example, in, fa- in figure four, uh, you see that you effectively at really at the end of the curve when at the end of where you have your data points when it goes down so i i'm not convinced or i could i could not make a convincing argument to be honest that this is some underlying issue or that the algorithm uh behaves for a rational fact i think we need some more investigation on why that's the case and i think there's also obviously i think we all aware of sort of that the size of the of of the anomaly will have a big impact on the detection performance. I also feel that you know at some point the anomaly potentially becomes that large that you uh, that perhaps it no longer is regarded as an anomaly. And the other thing is, of course, I think these uh, the data sets here where your tumor the tumor shape the tumor appearance also potentially changes with size. So it might become more diffuse and therefore also more difficult to segment in the ground truth. So sometimes you might also argue that some of the performance drop is perhaps because actually the tumor margins are not so clearly defined. And therefore, perhaps we shouldn't also trust the manual segmentation uh, that much. So I think, as you see, there are so many factors that uh, I've just thrown up here, which effectively means I can't really give you uh, an honest answer that I would would know what's going on here. But you pointed out something which I think is definitely something which merits uh, further investigation in a bit more detail. Yeah, I mean, first of all, you have given an honest answer in that regard. This honest answer would be, yeah, because of this and that. (laughs) You didn't say that. So that way, first of all, thank you for being very honest and very open. It's not often very easy to do that when you are talking about your own papers. But at the same time, I feel it's fascinating to look at failure modes. And we learn so much when we are really looking at the corner cases and where things didn't do well. Yeah. And again, a very, very interesting paper, highly recommended to all our listeners. We are coming towards the end of the session. And again, it's a rather tradition to ask about the future here. You have been to London for 25 years. You came back to Germany with a Humboldt professorship that is focusing on AI in health and medicine. So you are definitely thinking about, let's say, what would be the major success stories, right, in the coming years or so. So can you share uh, what your hunches are for the next coming five years, what, where the success lies for healthcare AI? Yeah, I, I, I can try to do that. And I, I'll probably give you a view on this with a strong focus on what I think the imaging part, because I think that's the part which I also know best. So I think one of the things which I think we have already seen is that perhaps where, where all the AI technology has had the biggest commercial impact and the biggest impact in translation into hospitals is, for example, on the side of image acquisition. So I think not everybody realizes this, but most vendor hardware from Siemens, GE and Philips are using some potentially deep learning algorithm in the image reconstruction already. So I think we have already seen some parts of this being being translated. And I think this will continue uh, in the future. And my hunch is that we will also have a much closer coupling of what data is acquired and how that data is then interpreted. So I think there are a lot of exciting developments 
on trying to link up how we reconstruct images and how we improve image quality with what you're going to do downstream with the um, with the images, for example, uh, extracting information from them. And sort of the paradigm, which I think potentially is becoming more and more uh, interesting, is can we do task-specific imaging? If we know beforehand what we want to do, can I optimize the imaging for that? One of the things I always sort of think about is Perhaps we can at some point go directly from the sensed data, from the acquired data to the clinical information. And I think many people quote uh, always, I think Jeff Hinton for this quote, uh, that we should not no longer train radiologists, which I think is completely misguided. But perhaps we can ask ourselves the questions, do we really need images in the full detail as an intermediate representation? Because let's face it, we're acquiring high dimensional sensor data, then we try to reconstruct an even higher dimensional image from it, and then we do some dimensionality reduction or information reduction, uh, typically through a human user who then sort of summarizes the whole patient in a, in a report with a couple of sentences. So perhaps we can do that pipeline of translating the sense data to that clinically actionable information more efficiently. And I think there we hopefully will see a lot of exciting developments uh, in the coming years. And that's where I think uh, there's really some innovation happening, both also mixing together hardware and software. Uh, there are exciting things which, for example, low field MR scanners being able to generate images with very good quality. And that has a lot of impact, for example, on affordable healthcare, on on how widely a technology can be used. So that's what I find very exciting and where I see a lot of potential for AI driving innovation in healthcare in the next couple of years. Yeah, that's really well put. This acquisition analysis, handshake, and even thinking of how the information flows and where we can bring a lot of benefit with the AI technologies. That's really amazing. I'm, I'm looking forward to see many more very interesting works coming from your ever bigger group of researchers and definitely looking forward, I guess, to see you in Mikai and other conferences. Thank you so much for your time, Daniel. It was wonderful talking to you. Thank you very much for the invitation. It was great to chat to you as well. Thank you. Have a nice day. Bye-bye. <laughs>